0: Well, if you've got a Bible, please open it to the 130th Psalm. As you might have noticed in your bulletin, our service this morning is, as it were, chock-full of Psalm 130. Uh, it's in the Assurance of Pardon. We sang it um, in, in kind of conjunction with that song by the Gettys, the I'll Wait For You song. In, after the sermon, we are going to sing the, the Scottish Psalter version of Psalm 130. We're going to sing the whole thing together. And uh, But before we, before we do that, and before I take you to this psalm and we meditate on it together, I wanted to remind you of some things, kind of why we're here, why we're in this series, why the psalms. First of all, the justification, as with every other sermon I preach, why go here, because God wrote it, because God said it, there's something for us in it. Furthermore, I am more and more convinced that the psalms are are songs of war, as we, as we, con- as we said in the confession of, of sin, against the world, the flesh, and the devil that never stop attacking us. And I think in more than a few places, in more than a few congregations, we've just forgotten how to go to these words and to sing them together. And so I, I, I think there's, um, I, I might go so far as to say, no better weapon in spiritual warfare, certainly it's got to be in your top five in the arsenal, uh, is, is learning how to sing these psalms as a way to, to not only respond to the trials, but you're singing them to the trials, to the difficulties, to the warfare, to the things that are coming against you. Because there are two troubles when it comes to our emotions. And I think this applies to both men and women. We have trouble talking about them sometimes. But then even if we manage that well enough, we have trouble being honest about them. That's not lying to others or not lying to ourselves about what's going on in our emotions, to the extent that we even understand ourselves. Amen? I mean, I don't know if you have difficult days where you struggle even to understand yourself. Just me? Okay. All right. So why these psalms? There have been a couple of psalms we've been giving particular attention to. Because in the month of October, kind of Reformation, moving toward Reformation Sunday, these psalms uh, were of particular importance in the Reformation. But why this one, 130. Well, because psalms like this one help us to be honest about our sin. Honest about iniquity is the word used. Uh, uh, we'll, We'll see that in a moment. But helping you to admit your sins, that's even harder than just talking about your feelings, admitting your sins. Especially, especially if you're trying to project an image around people of like having it all together. The last thing you want to do in that circumstance is be honest about your sin. So before we go to the text together, what I want you to think about this morning is that there are some common answers, two in particular, that we give to this question of of like, what am I supposed to do with my feelings when they get a bit much or whether it's sinful feelings or feelings that I don't know how to classify, just emotions well up in me. There is the stoic way. Which, I'm, broadly speaking, uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in Stoicism, but I think part of the Stoic way is to stuff them, or at least to put a kind of cap on them. And then you have the secular way, which has captured our cultural imagination, which is to obey them. Okay? Whatever your feelings are, whatever impulses you have, whatever desires you have, you should obey those and pursue them. So stuff them or obey them. The biblical way is actually to pray them. Think of the Psalms. Not just to pray about them, but actually, as it were, process them before God. That's what happens in a lot of the Psalms. Some Psalms address a sense that that the singer has been forsaken by God. Think of 13 and 22. We've, We've covered those. Some address godly living, like Psalm 1 and Psalm 15. Some address God's rule and His messianic king, the office that's fulfilled in Christ, like Psalm 2. This one, Psalm 130, is about guilt and shame and unworthiness. So let's go there together. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. That means this is a a song that that, uh, the people of Israel would sing when they were on their way up to Jerusalem for one of the major feasts or uh, festivals. And so then you'd have this this deal where where as more and more people would arrive in Jerusalem, the song would get louder and louder and louder. So you got people singing it on their way up and people singing it on the wall as they're coming in. And as, as more people are arriving, this song is growing in all its power. And one of the songs that they were singing was this one, this song of repentance and this song of desperation. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And he repeats it. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. So we have, I'm going to structure broadly and generally this psalm under three headings. The first one is a cry from the depths, a cry from the pit. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Then you have, in a sense, God's answer, based on what the psalmist knows about God, and then you have the way out. The way out of the pit from verse 1. So a cry from the depths. Let's hear it again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh, and then O Adonai, interestingly enough, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist cries out to God because he feels like he's sinking. There is this... um, in, in, in the Psalms, you can find other places where there's this miry bog, miry pit, quicksand kind of language. I am sinking, and I need help. There's a great uh, quote from Martin Luther here. If we can go there, is that the next one? Yeah, crying, that is crying out, is nothing but a strong and earnest longing for God's grace, which does not arise in a person unless he sees in what depth he's lying. Right? You have to see the mess before you cry out to God. And sometimes <coughs> more than a few of you have this testimony of God revealing that to you. Oh, now I know things are much worse than I thought. What am I going to do? Well, it's beyond my power and strength. So I'm going to cry out to the Lord. And this wasn't in the in, in my notes, but I just want something want to remind you of something that I think even sometimes in our in our efforts to, to want to be well-informed biblically. We have a problem. We go to Scripture to find the solution. All well and good. Yes and amen. If you've got a problem and you know that there are passages in Scripture that address it, you should go there. Something just to keep in mind, though. Don't, don't let going to the Word keep you from crying out to God as well. Right? Okay? So, so yes, we are people of the Word, people of the book. We flee to the Word in our need. And we are also a people who, when we are in the depths, in the miry bog, in the pit, cry out to God. We find out why he's sinking down into a pit. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, if you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So we know that this pit he's sinking down and has something to do with sin, iniquities. Okay? So we're dealing with sins. And this shows us, again... The simple importance of crying out to God, even though the psalmist knows God's promises. I mean, we're going to read about him in a minute, about forgiveness. That doesn't stop him from crying out for mercy. Now, what this shows us again is that there is, in the psalms, and therefore in the life of the believer, the experience of sinking down into a pit because of your sin. It is part of the, we might say, ordinary experience of the Christian. So important that we can sing about it. It's to be part of our song. Now, you might know that this approach to dealing with guilt is pretty odd by modern standards. Okay? What, what I mean is that most modern psychological therapeutic approaches to guilt... Uh, today we're told that if you have guilt over your so-called sins, well, that's really bad. It can result in something called neurosis. Nobody wants that. And so we enlightened modern Westerners have this tendency to just dismiss our guilt. Okay, so, so if you feel guilty, that's the problem. You need to reevaluate your definitions so that you don't feel guilty anymore. Just let it go. Get over it. It's really unhealthy after all. You have to decide your own right and wrong. And since you decide your own right and wrong... Once you, I mean, once you do decide your own right and wrong, then you won't feel guilty, right? 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 Since you decide your own right and wrong, you won't have to feel guilty about what you do. All I have to ask, all I have to say to that is that if that's true, if we have, as a people, successfully learned how to erase guilt by kind of reappropriating it or recategorizing it, why are we the most anxious and depressed people that I think the West has yet seen? In fact... We are guilty and we know it. A lot of social movements today trade on the fact that we're guilty and we know it. But even if you think you can just dissolve your guilt by convincing yourself you're not really guilty, does the cry of the psalmist still sound all that unfamiliar? I mean, do you still never experience a sinking down to the depths feeling of your own failure? I think I'm saying even if you're not a Christian, what we are getting into and what we're going to get into in the sermon is the difference then between guilt and shame. You've already heard me allude to it. So let me me go over that real quick. Guilt is fear or sadness or anger or grief over broken rules, broadly speaking. Shame is horror over a broken self-image. Okay? Guilt is is, is the sense I've broken rules. I feel bad because I broke a rule. Shame is I feel bad because I broke my vision of who I thought I was. okay? Or, or hoped that I was. So for example, if you steal something and you get caught, you probably will experience guilt and shame. There's the I broke a law and oh my goodness, apparently I'm a selfish thief who's not even good at it because I got caught. <laughs> right? And so you have guilt and you have shame. So what do we do with guilt and shame? As I said, the modern therapeutic answer is don't feel that way. Guilt comes from, you know, uh, again, the modern therapy lens would say something like guilt is from living up to somebody else's expectations like your parents or your society or your church, I suppose. So just just cast that off. You decide what you're going to do and what's going to be right for you. And the bad news is, that usually ends up increasing shame. Because who on earth is, right now, actually the person they wish they were? Anybody want to raise their hand on that one? Right? Who is, if, if, I mean, have you ever been, you know, enough? Have you ever been the person you've actually wanted to be? I submit to you that the Ten Commandments would be a lighter burden than decide what you are going to be and be it. That's much harder than 10 clear-cut rules. So what is God's answer to the psalmist? Well, God's answer to the psalmist is to pull him out of the pit. He means to reach down and pull him out. Sometimes people think, I mean, if, you're, if you're sinking into, into a pit, what I really need is for somebody to jump into the pit with me and say, oh, this is so hard. Let's get together and talk about it a bunch. <laughs> so there's time for that. But what you need if you're sinking in a pit is a strong arm to pull you out, right? That's what this word does in Psalm 130. They need a way out. So what is the way out? What is God's answer? It's two things. First of all, it's a real standard, a real way to evaluate how things are. And a real redeemer. Redemption is in verses 7 and 8. So first, the, the, the standard, God's standard. Again, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about what he's saying here. I mean, just w- with the Psalms, if, if you get a visual image, you really kind of want to picture it and work through it. So imagine, I, I, once, I once heard a man say, imagine if God kept a bowl by his heavenly throne and dropped a marble in it every time you sinned. Let let that image kind of get planted in your head. Okay, even just for a week or for a day. It would not be long before I think the angels would begin to exchange glances and whisper, I think he's going to need a bigger bowl. This is what the psalmist is getting at. There is is a real standard if the Lord was to mark iniquity. If the Lord was to count up sins. If God decided to be strict with you for a day, how would you fare? So the psalmist says, if you were to do it. So God has a standard. But I want to tell you something that's going to sound weird at first. That's actually really good news for despairing hearts. Because when you have God's words, it means that you can see things as God sees them, namely as they are. So you can actually know what's right and wrong and what's good and evil. So when guilt and shame come along, you actually have something objective by which to measure it and judge it. Does that make sense? You have something objective to measure your guilt and shame. Should I be guilty about this? Should I be ashamed of this? And so you feel guilty because uh, uh, you overcooked the meal and now the house smells like meatloaf a la brimstone. Okay? Okay. Does God call that sin? Nope. Okay. So I can reject that guilt. I've never burned a meatloaf. I've also never cooked one. (laughs) (laughs) So what about adultery, right? I mean, let's just, we used stealing earlier as an example. Adultery. What about theft? What about being really unhappy with what I have and wishing I had my neighbor's life instead? That's the 10th commandment. So God has some things, rather specific things, to say about those. So you don't get to reject that guilt. You have to confess those things. That's what you do with that. So I said, God's standard then is good news because on the last day, you are not going to be judged by a man-made standard. I don't care if you made it. I don't care if your parents made it. I don't care if your pastor made it. I don't care if your school made it. You are not going to be judged by a man-made standard on the last day. You are going to be judged by the Almighty God who made you. Which, I want, I want to connect something else to that with you. If you'll follow me there just for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If we can go there next. So the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians. And he, he says something related to this that I find really amazing. Okay? He says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Think about what he's saying there for a second, okay? So in the first part, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, you're not my judge, Corinthians, right? You don't get to judge me. But then surprise, you know who else isn't his judge? Him, (laughs) Right, he says, "You're you're not the one who will decide for me, like what is sin." But I, I also am not the one who decides that. I don't even judge me. As far as I can tell, I'm innocent. But that doesn't matter. What matters most is what God thinks about me. Do you see why we need God's law and His Word? So that you can know what is sin and what's not sin, and then entrust yourself to the one who judges perfectly. Right? So there's, that's part of how we get out of the pit, knowing this God. But I said, where, where does the psalm go? It also goes to redemption. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, right? So that's the next bit, verses 7 and 8. Hope in the Lord, for with Yahweh there is steadfast love. With him, plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the great hope. Okay? I've got the standard, right? God's law. He tells me what's right and wrong. Yeah? I know what God says. Cool. I still have sin, I still have guilt, still have shame. So, so what do I do with that? You bring it to the Redeemer. You bring it. To the Redeemer who purchases you out of the pit. That's what redemption means. It's a financial term. It's buying you out of the pit. Out of the slavery. Because our God is one who draws near to sinners. And He forgives them if you can bear it. The forgiveness of God is based on something real. It's not simply offered just without price, without cost. It's a purchase. It's a redemption. He will redeem Israel. He will purchase his people Israel out of the pit out of the slavery and notice in verses 7 and 8 the psalmist moves from talking about God uh, excuse me moves from talking to God about his sins and his troubles and his forgiveness and then he addresses all of Israel right so it's like you know iniquities who would stand Lord what do we I mean but there's there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared now attention Israel (laughs) hope in the Lord put your hope in your redeemer not in your ability to dig yourself out of the pit right and this is one of those times i just reading a text like this i'm so thankful for the new covenant reality that there are not two peoples of god israel israel biblically speaking this is perhaps maybe another sermon or at least a chat over coffee but i'm just going to give you a little little taste Israel, biblically speaking, the way the Bible uses it most often, okay, does not refer to a nation due south of Turkey. We are all children of Father Abraham by faith in the promised Messiah. And so all the promises of God are for us, yes and amen, in Christ Jesus. And so when God addresses Israel in promises like this, these are hopes for all of you, dear saints. Amen. So when we sing, he will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow, we are not singing about a nation state or particular ethnic tribe. We are speaking of the worldwide Israel of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles and Canadians and South Africans and Mexicans and Saudis and Americans and Texans. God be praised, all of them, and he will redeem And he is redeeming for himself an Israel that is made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. This has always been the plan. From the garden and before the garden and before there were gardens. Now, you might have noticed I skipped a couple of verses. Verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. And then you have one of these kind of rare moments in the Psalms where it seems like you have a a repeated refrain, which, as you know, is useful for singing. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The battle to find rest from guilt and shame is an ongoing one. It's ongoing. It's going to require some waiting. It's not all going to happen overnight. But it is it is a battle well seasoned with lots of victories along the way and lots of rest. The psalmist speaks of waiting on God. Now notice, he pleads for mercy, right? O oh Lord hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. And then we get to I I will wait. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Now I would say, based on verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. He knows he's forgiven. So what's he waiting for? He said he's forgiven. He knows he's forgiven. Yet he's going to wait. And when we sing that song, I will wait for you, uh, that we just sang a little while ago. What is it that we're waiting for? We have to have that answer. Otherwise, we're just going to mouth words and associate with them with whatever pops into our heads. What are, you, what are we waiting on? What are we longing for? We are waiting for the rest from guilt and shame that comes only from the forgiveness of Jesus. So, as I said, you've got to keep in mind, that is a process. Processes don't happen overnight. Israel hopes in her God. She waits on her God. And what is... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What does Israel mean again? Who knows what Israel means? Who gets to show off their, their Bible knowledge? Huh? Huh? close oh you're so close no <laughs> thanks for taking the hit elder now nobody else wants to wrestles with god okay he who wrestles with god it's the name that was given to jacob after he wrestles with god now how cool is that that forever that's our name the people who wrestle with god so what do we do if we're wrestling what if we do if we're waiting what if we do if we're in the middle of, say, guilt and shame and can't can't find the rest. Again, keep in mind it's a process. Wrestles with God. And this is not just for some small nation in the Old Covenant. It is the perpetual name of God's people forever. And so it should not surprise us that wrestling is part of the gig. It's not a bug. It's a feature. So Israel, wait for the Lord. More than watchmen in the dead of night are waiting the morning wait in community because that's what israel is right he turns his eyes and it says attention community of israel people of israel right Uh, a big group plural and that's what we do we we, we wait in community we tell others (laughs) when we're waiting but i there's there's a kind of inevitable question i think that comes up when we start talking about Sin and guilt and I don't want to I don't want to finish the sermon and leave it unattended to entirely and and it goes something like this it's a fairly common question in lots of different scenarios and cases and it goes something like this I know that God forgives me right he has forgiven me but I struggle with forgiving myself that's the shame element I'm waiting for the morning I'm waiting for the dawn I'm waiting for the light so I can get out of the pit but I can't forgive myself so what what advice do we give to such a one i will say normally the advice we give is like i <laughs> uh, don't feel that way you know god loves you and and we love you and you're pretty great and i mean you know you're forgiven right you're forgiven your past is forgiven because jesus died for you and he's forgiven you to which they say i i know all that thank you very much the the struggle point is that i'm having trouble forgiving me what's happening there well we tend to think sometimes, we are, I should say we're tempted to think, the, the real problem in such a situation is you've got a person who's just really not being that nice to themselves and, and beating them up. I think that being themselves up, I think that misses the mark. What's happening in such cases is that they're, still, they're glad to receive forgiveness. Let's go ahead and put the charitable interpretation on that. Happy to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, but they still fear the image and the vision of who they imagine themselves to be, which they have now failed, right? Failed to be. Do you see in verse 4 then why it says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In other words, with you, not only is there the removal of guilt, but there is the removal of the person I was trying to create myself to be and the fear of of that failure. And instead of fearing that God, and instead of worshiping that ideal of me, I'm going to fear and worship the God who forgives me. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, For if anyone fears something besides God, he seeks the favor and mercy of the other thing and does not care about God but whoever fears God and desires his grace and doesn't care about anything that is not God for he knows that no one can harm him if God is gracious to him so in a sense I just can't forgive myself means I've chosen a path I've created a vision I'm not there yet and I'm not done beating myself up to get there so who's your God? Because if your real God forgives you, you'll stand forgiven. You'll be pulled up out of the pit. So Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, with this God, there is plenteous redemption. Plenty for you. And He will buy you out of your pit and redeem you from every single sin. In the name of Jesus, Amen.